Defense acquisition reform may seem like a topic that never changes, but a group of former Pentagon officials say they have solutions. The Atlantic Council's Commission on Defense Innovation Adoption released its interim report last Wednesday. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr is here with the details. Alexandra, how you doing? Good. How are you, Eric? Oh, fantastic. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about the commission itself? Yeah, the Atlantic Council pulled together a group of former defense officials to try and come up with an answer for how do you fix acquisition? And they, for the chairman, they had former Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Uh, he was from a Republican administration. And then former Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James from a Democratic administration. So they were trying to make it kind of even, bipartisan. And the idea was to come up with recommendations to make quick impact on the acquisition process, particularly as it relates to emerging technologies. Here's Debbie James. DOD's acquisition and requirements processes, which let's face it, they were built in a different era. They deliver systems to meet requirements that may have been defined over a decade earlier, and yet the whole world has changed in the intervening time. Now, to be sure, there are pockets of innovation, pockets of excellence and speed within the department where things move more quickly, but these are pockets. Deborah Lee James there. So what does this commission propose to do about it? Well, they made up a list of their 10 top recommendations, and then they grouped them in different areas. Uh, They grouped them around acquisition and the budget process, and then ideas based on nurturing innovation. The three items looking specifically at the way the Defense Department handles procurement include... Uh, first, consolidating program elements and budget line items to simplify budget submissions, and then using artificial intelligence to streamline and modernize budget justification documents. It's this gigantic document, and they're thinking that you could use your computer to make it a little easier to work with. Um, and then a big one was changing reprogramming so that it would require congressional notification instead of approval for items that are over the cost threshold. That's a big one because it's money that you kind of move around in the budget. Peter Medigliani is co-author of the report and a defense acquisition lead for the MITRE Corporation. Here he is talking about the current approval process for that reprogramming. Right now, you have to go through a lengthy process of the services, then OSD, then OMB, then the Hill all have to approve a reprogramming authority, reprogramming above that threshold. It's been more and more constrained where now you have to have prior approval from all four defense committees before you can move that money. And that could take six to nine months to go through the DOD and congressional process. And so he says that if you just change it to a notification instead of an approval, you could have a 30-day period where Congress could look at it, they could get information on it, or they could flag it if they wanted to, but it would speed up the whole process. All right. So that sounds good. But what about the topic of helping smaller companies? That's something that defense acquisition officials have been trying to tackle for quite some time now. You're right about that. And the commission did have a couple of ideas. First, they think more companies should follow the uh, the model of the Space Development Agency. You probably recall that the Space Development Agency launched 10 low Earth orbit satellites two weeks ago. And the entire process from authority pr- to proceed to the launch only took 30 months. That's, you know, speed of light and acquisition time. And the idea was to build cheaply, build small and then push the process forward quickly. Another recommendation the commission made was to direct more funding to later stage small business innovation research projects to fast track successful companies when they're ready to move into production. Here's Whitney McNamara, a vice president at Beacon Global Strategies and another co-author of the report. 
two of the recommendations that tried to tackle that challenge was one, to generate direct phase three SIBRs in which early uh, successful performers that already have phase one SIBRs can be fast-tracked to those more flexible contracts that have no limits of dollar size for procurement and all the other flexibility that comes along with phase three SIBRs. Whitney McNamara there. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. So, Alexandra, did the commission bring up the idea of funding with private capital at all, or is this all just going to be public money? No, private capital is kind of a a buzzword right now, and everyone's trying to figure out how to get more of it into the acquisition process. The report recommended that the Office of Strategic Capital develop tools for leveraging capital market funding for research and development pilot projects. And then going back to the SIBRs, the committee also recommended removing the barrier of a company that's more than 50% backed by venture capital for them to be able to compete for SIBRs. The idea is let's not punish successfully growing companies that have already gotten a vote of confidence from financial backers. And then they're also recommending removing the barrier to publicly traded companies. Here's Whitney McNamara again. We also wanted to recommend removing the barrier that prevents companies that meet the requirements of a small business, but they're being publicly traded to compete for SIBRs. Small high-tech R&D firms have to go public to continue to be able to raise money for what's typically very capital-intensive technologies. And so by disallowing them from competing for SIBRs, I think DOD sort of cutting themselves off from accessing some of the most tech-proficient corners of the industrial base. And so the committee put this out as an interim report to talk about and maybe revise. But the interesting thing about it is that every point they made has parts to it that say things like this can be done for the 2024 fiscal budget. This can be done by 2026. There's no talk of let's do this 10 years from now. It's all let's do it this summer and get it in, into progress because we don't have any time left. We've got the Russians, we've got the Chinese, and we really need this process to move forward and get fixed now. All right. So the Pentagon looking to live in the moment, so to speak. (laughs) That's right. Live in the moment. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thank you so much for reporting. And we'll uh, we'll definitely check back on you to see if they stay with those timelines. All right. That sounds good. Thanks, Eric. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.